I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. It's our first interview that we've done together, Lawrence, when we've really been journalistic peers, you know? (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be fun then. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. If you've listened to this show over the years, chances are you might have heard me interview Lawrence Bartley. I first talked with him when he was incarcerated at Sing Sing in upstate New York. And over the years, I've talked with him and his wife, Raneem, as he got out on parole and began a career in journalism. This is Inside Story, the only show about the system by people who lived it. I'm Lawrence Bartley. Our prisons have gotten so violent that even if you didn't go in with a trauma disorder, it's hard to come out without one. Lawrence covers criminal justice issues for the Marshall Project. And earlier this year, he launched an interview show with Vice News. In fact, just yesterday, well, this morning, I just came back from South Carolina from a a prison there. And just seeing the things that the men in there cherish, like their barbershop area, like their, their kitchen area, and it's really... Uh, not something that I would cherish. Mm. You know, I understand that it's, it's, it's what they have, but it reminds me of that place in, in, in a way that doesn't feel good. When we first talked in 2014, Lawrence was just starting to imagine his life on the outside. He was in his early 40s and had been behind bars since he was a teenager. You, you say uh, many times in my, in my mind, I say, I want to go home, I want to go home. And, you know, sometimes I wake up and say, what if I wake up and I'm in my bedroom, you know, and I wake up and I always see the bars there. And I wonder the day that I'm going to wake up and I'm not going to see the bars there. And that forces you to think about what you did to get here. We talked then about the crime he committed. He fired a gun once during a shootout in a movie theater when he was 17. A 15-year-old bystander was killed. Lawrence was convicted of murder. We talked about other things, too. His education and the degrees he'd earned inside, and becoming a husband while he was incarcerated. He'd first dated his wife, Ranine, when they were in middle school in Queens, New York. I would walk her from my house to her house, and then... She would say, no, I want to walk you back to your house. We walk back to my house. Then I'd say, I'm going to walk you back to your house. And so we just spend the day walking from house to house. Lawrence was paroled in 2018, five years ago. 
soon after the Marshall Project hired him. And the first thing I was tasked with was looking at the website to get familiar with what we do. And when I saw that we do all this, you know, criminal justice journalism that people on the inside, particularly me, I could have used, I could have used some of that language to move the court to try try to get my sentence reduced. Mm. I could have just been abreast of what's going on in, in other prisons and jails. I could have use the ideas of the prison programming to pitch it to the prison administrators to get better programming in my facility. Lawrence pitched the Marshall Project an idea to create print issues of their criminal justice coverage for incarcerated people. Lawrence became the director and then publisher of News Inside, a free magazine. It was also designed with prison security measures in mind, like with attention to the way the pages are bound. So they call it the saddle stitch, which are just two or three staples in a magazine. And that's easy enough. You can, you can Security can look through that and see there's no contraband in there. And they could take that out if they want, lose the pages, see there's no contraband stuck in there. And, and that had allowed us to gain entry in a lot of prisons and jails. Right huh. now, the magazine is read in over 950 prisons and jails across the country. And the new show with Vice, Inside Story, was an outgrowth of that work. Lawrence and his colleagues thought that given the low literacy rates in prison, video would allow even more people to access their journalism. Lawrence is the show's host. Did you find you like being on camera? Do you like it? Um, um, I like it, but I wouldn't say... I like being on camera, but what I, I like the process of doing the thing, of learning something and doing it at the same time and knowing that what it would mean to people. So that just infused me with, with a, a, a sense of energy. Uh-huh. And also the fact that knowing that someone, someone with my background usually doesn't get these kind of opportunities. Um, this is like a dream. I'm, I mean, I, I could be, I remember the times when I was sitting in a solitary confinement cell. Uh, so why, why wouldn't I just put all my effort into this grand opportunity that's going to help so many people? So that, that, that just all those thoughts going through my mind, that just made it made me feel awesome when I'm in front of a camera, made me really enjoy what I'm doing. Yeah. I want to I talk with you about, like, how you've thought about your work as a journalist and as an interviewer. Um, because I think about, you know, your first encounters with the news media um, were... Uh, were you being the, the subject of an interview um, or being covered by people, most of whom had not had intimate contact with the criminal justice system themselves or, or with their family? And when you started to think about the kinds of uh, interviews and interactions that you wanted to have, um, how did you, like, begin to think about the approach? Like, what had been your experience and your encounters with being the subject of media interviews, and how do you think that 
informed how you wanted to do it? Well, um, first, when I started being a, a, a journalist or in this field, I, I kind of, I, in my mind, I always envisioned incarcerated people's watching me. Mm. When folks on the inside would see the news, they would say they would always have this little wry look on their face like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just somebody else's story. It's not really the truth. Mm. You know, they, they'll always try to make us look bad, but there's other folks that are bad as well. They should help you held accountable too. So when I started being going into this and, and interviewing that, I make sure that I bring out the fear questions or the questions that that no one else w- would ask. I interviewed these two police officers. You know, they were talking about being fair and, and they called themselves the right police. And I got a lot of respect for those two guys. They were they were, they're really they're really trying to do something positive. But I remember they were saying that um I mean I asked them about, you know, interrogations. How do you handle interrogations? Interrogations. I mean that's a that's an art. You that's know? an art. One of them starts saying interrogation is an art, it, you know, you know, it's this. But if you ask an incarcerated person, so when you hear that word interrogation, it's like that's when the unfairness begins. Mm. And so, you know, I started asking them questions like, you know, what would you do if you see someone, you know, beating on someone? Like, you know, they like, oh, well, there's cameras there. Well, there's not cameras there. Well, there's right to remain silent. We tell them. If he invokes his right to speak and waits for his attorney, we can't interrogate. Well, I mean, but does that happen? I remember when I, but, well, when I was arrested, right. I said I want a right to remain silent. They said, yeah, hi, right. you gonna get your ass in there and I'm a right well, to whoop your mother. Yeah, that policing culture has fucked it up. But then we started having these real dialogues like, yeah, it happens, that's, that gives us a bad name and, and you know, that's part of it that needs to change. And, you know, when incarcerated people see that, they be like, finally, someone is giving the real, asking the real questions. I don't see it as advocating for one thing or another. I'm just saying, let's stick with the facts and and fact check everything to make sure we're giving people the complete start. And that means doing journalism in a way that's reflective of everyone's experience. Mm. Do you feel like have there been any moments where you've been working as a journalist when you, when someone sees you as somebody who gets it and can who, who can help them, whether it's with the details of their case or or some detail of their incarceration, like, um, and you come up against the limits of of what you can and can't do as a journalist? Like, what what's that been like for you? Yeah, um, it's been it's been crazy to say the least. I mean, people, I get 60 pieces of mail every week. And that's not counting the the calls I get from family members or emails I get from family members saying, this is urgent, please help my dad, please help Mm -hmm. my son, please help my husband or my brother or or my sister who's incarcerated. And and I, I do my best to read them all. I do my best to respond to them all. But more times than not, I find myself saying, um, we're a journalism organization. We're not lawyers. It's like, like we can't, I can't move the court on your behalf. 
And they would say, well, can you get my story out there? People need to know my story. But it's not easy. It doesn't work like that. You know, stories are pitched by reporters and then it has to be a, a thread that we can pull. And sometimes we take two years to do a story. And I try to be kind and explain it, but it's a long way of saying no. You know, I always feel, I hear the person crestfalling on the other line or in their email and it's like, it's tough, it's tough. Coming up, Lawrence and I talk about the day we first met in 2014 and a journalistic decision I made that Lawrence took issue with. You didn't, like, say directly to me, like, that's really bothered me over the years, or would you mind taking a look at that episode title? You just sort of referenced it. Um, Is this okay to talk about? Are you okay talking about this? Absolutely. Hey, it's Anna, and I want to tell you about a live upcoming interview I'm doing with comedian Maria Bamford at the Sydney Goldstein Theatre in San Francisco on October 14th with City Arts and Lectures. Maria has a new book that's just out called Sure, I'll Join Your Cult. It's all about her career in show business and the comfort she's found in rigid systems like self-help books and various 12-step groups. And it's also about money. She includes breakdowns with real dollar amounts of how much money she earns as a stand-up and what she spends it on in her business. If you know Maria Bamford's comedy and if you've heard her on the show back in 2020, you know that she's hilarious and also a very generous, thoughtful, and candid storyteller about mental health and living with mental illness. If you can make it to San Francisco to see Maria Bamford on stage with me on October 14th, come out. There's a link to get tickets in our show notes. And if you can't make it in person, don't worry. You can also grab a ticket to watch the event from wherever you are. I promise you, time with Maria Bamford is time well spent. So grab a ticket and join us. With what seems like an endless amount of information at our fingertips, we tend to forget that wondering about things is really part of the journey to finding answers we're looking for. So when it comes to the hot topics of Israel, Judaism, and Zionism— There's so much to wonder about right now that it's hard to know where to turn. Enter the latest weekly podcast from Unpacked, Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam. Join hosts and educator extraordinaires Michal Biton and Noam Weissman as they tackle these topics and the uncomfortable questions that surround them with the goal of working towards the answers together with their listeners. No matter where you're from, if you've ever wondered about anything, this is the podcast for you. So check it out. Subscribe to Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam on your favorite podcast app today. Wondering Jews is brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Lawrence Bartley now lives in Connecticut in a house he bought with his wife, Renine. Their two sons are 10 and 15. He travels in and out of New York City for work when he has to. And since his parole ended in 2019... He's been allowed to travel out of the country, too. I went to Italy. I went to Peru. I went to St. Thomas. I went to Guyana. 
And and I, that's a place that I went alone. That's where my parents are, are from. That's where they grew up. And I saw the room my dad was born in. Mm. I saw the house my mother grew up in. I saw some relatives that I've never seen before. And it felt really wonderful. Lawrence and I have stayed in touch through all this. And he's kept up with the changes in my life since we've known each other. When I got married, had my first kid... When I was on my second maternity leave, Lawrence reached out to say he was at a journalism conference at UC Berkeley, and I was able to run down to campus to say hello in person. It was quite a different setting when we first met. He walked into a prison conference room where our team had set up microphones. We'd never spoken before. I'd corresponded with a prison official to set up the interview. And he'd agreed to talk to this newish podcast called Death, Sex, and Money of All Things, Sight Unseen. I'm curious if you remember, like, the rest of your afternoon after I first did that interview with you. Like, what was your experience of that? Did you think, like, who is this woman? (laughs) She asked me a lot of personal questions. (laughs) Uh, uh, I remember remember going back. I was in the cell that they had me in. You know, I kind of... Uh, kind of decompressed and, and and debriefed what had happened in my mind. I didn't have no one to talk to about it. But I was waiting to get out of the cell so I can go to the phone booth, the little dusty wooden phone booth we had, so I can call Ronine on the payphone. Yeah. It looks like a payphone. And, and I called her and and she asked what happened. And I explained. And she was, she was looking you up on looking your previous shows up and see how it was done. And and there was this guy who was in the theater program that I was a part of in there. And he had done an interview and he had the, he, he, he thought he was doing this, this thing, great thing with theater. He was acting in prison and it was like, this is this great grandest moment for him. And, and this publication was interviewing him about it. But when, when it came out, all they talked about is Two-thirds of the interviews about the horrible crime he had committed, and he's doing this acting thing, and, and he was really embarrassed when it came out. The program was really embarrassed, mm. and, and and folks around the prison was like, oh, be careful talking to the media. This is what they're going to do to you. Be careful, and, and you're going to be reliving it for your victims. It might be 20 years ago the crime happened, but it brings it up, and the victims start thinking about you and relive their pain. and. You go to the parole board, and once you go to the parole board, they're not gonna let you out because of that. And you know that was like the big talk. So after I came from the interview, I started thinking about that. I said, um, you know, I was like, am I dredging up the pain for someone? How they're gonna do it? How is Anna gonna depict me in in the piece? Um, and and I think you did a fair job, and and I felt that what I shared, the intimate details of what got me in there and how I felt was, was honest. Yeah. How did it feel? How did it feel for you going into a maximum security prison, hearing what you heard? Um, that first interview was so emotional. Yeah. And I, I and and I know that you know thinking about the crime, you, you would think about the victim, but then you have someone you're interviewing. Um, Maybe you don't want to feel, 
you don't want to feel like you're feeling sympathy for this person above the other. And it's like this weird kind of dynamic, but you're a human being. Like, how did it make you feel? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember Lawrence so clearly, like, the first time we met. And I, I can picture the, the conference room where we were. And you were sitting, I think, you were sitting at one corner and I was sitting at the end of the conference room. So we were sort of diagonal from each other. And you were wearing the greens, the prison green uniform. Um, and you really shared so much about your coming of age as a man uh, in that first conversation that we had. And I remember feeling so, like, close to you by the end of that interview because the way you let me and and then subsequently our listeners in um, and the way that that, you know, as a journalist, I remember feeling that, that, like, it's an immense responsibility when you have those kinds of encounters with incarcerated people who, yeah. who like, so desperately desire to feel heard and seen. Um, but also, you know, from a, from like the details of your case, like you were, you were going to be eligible for parole and not long. Like there was also reasons why, um, you know, sort of, I understood that, that you had an interest in, um, telling your story of how much you had grown and developed and, and the kind of man you had become while you were incarcerated. Um, you know, I, I thought about it a lot uh, this spring when we first started talking about um, doing this follow-up interview because do you remember when I, I first asked you about it, you just yeah. sort of like casually mentioned, um, you just sort of said, well, that first episode and the name of the episode, um, that was sort of all you said. You just referenced it. Mm -hmm. um, you didn't like say directly to me, like, that's really bothered me over the years or would you mind taking a look at that episode title? You just sort of referenced it. Um, is this okay to talk about? Are you okay talking about this? Absolutely. In 2014, we titled Death, Sex, and Money's first episode with Lawrence, I Killed Someone, Now I Have Three Kids. That's what Lawrence was mentioning when we were catching up in a phone call earlier this spring. Um, and I remember I got off the phone with you, and I—, and I um, I Googled your name, and I hadn't done that uh, just, and I noticed that what comes up with your name is, you know, your work at the Marshall Project, and then very high up is that first episode that we did together. That's an episode right. that I feel like is quite nuanced, um, and and but the title was not, the original title was not. Um, right. And... I was I felt this like real shame as a journalist for having not thought through you know a decision that we made quickly in 2014 when we were like deciding what the episode title ought to be and to post it so it was ready to go out on the podcast feed yeah. like not thinking through this is a digital media product this is something that is like going to live on the internet um and it continued to live in a very alive way on the internet for you up until 2023. Like, even as your life has transformed the way that we packaged this episode, um, you know, it was very clear, like, the episode title made it very clear that you were in prison on a murder conviction and that now you were a father. And I, and I, and I thought, 
I'm not sure that's what the episode is about. The episode is more about your experience of becoming a father in prison. And so um, so I, I, we've, we've updated the episode title name and corrected it. Um, but it, like it, it, it made real for me the way that episode titles and headlines can cast something in amber that's very much like a much more complicated human story. Um, yeah. And so I just, I, I, I apologize that it took me nine years to realize the impact of that quick decision. No worries, no worries. Um, I, I know that you didn't go out with intention, like try to offend me or, or shame me in any way. Um, a lot of publications are doing that, have been doing that, and they, they still do. Um, uh, I mean, I've been, I first heard the term, not to say that that's what w- was done with, with this episode, but one of my colleagues, one of the editors said, well, it's called clickbait. I'm like, clickbait? What's that? You know, I first got out. It's like <laughs> you give it this flashy, salacious title, and people will click on it and they'll read it, and you capture it, read it. So I was like, oh, oh, you know. So that's why people do that. Um, so, but yeah, man. So when when you know people would see that, I have a friend of mine, um, and she and, and she always brings that up. She's like, I'm just so hurt by the title. And I was like, well, shit, but the, the, the interview was great, but the title is hurtful. Um, so I really appreciated it when when you called me and said that, you know, we took it down and, and, and we changed it. And because that, that means something, it's meaningful. When when people consider me, now I don't hide the fact that I, I've, I've committed a crime. Um, but when they see me, I don't want to be seen as just that, you know. I'm I'm more than that, and you know, and titles and, and labels, and the lack of them goes a long way in allowing a person to be seen for who he, she, or they really are. The new title of the 2014 episode is "Becoming a Father in Prison." And I added an editorial update to the original posting to note that it was changed after publication. That new title, that's what comes up in Google searches now. Um, Can I ask you a few questions about parenting teenagers? Sure. Um, so your your young boys are now young men. Um, like, are you you know you were a teenager when you when you went away? Um, do you think of yourself as an overly protective parent? Like, are you trying to get in the way of them making knuckleheaded choices, or are you more of a parent who's like, I'm going to teach them about character, and then I'm going to trust that they're going to make the right choice. Um, yeah, I think I'm more leaning on the overly protective side, uh-huh. 
but I do give them more freedoms than my wife would. Like they'll say, "Oh, I want to go out." <laughs> She's even more protective. <laughs> She's even more protective, you know. So when I say, "Oh, they need to go out with friends," like yeah, my son want to go to Manhattan and, and on his own and, and do this and that. He's fifteen. She would say, "No." I'd be like, "He needs to." When I was fifteen, I was doing this. When you was fifteen, you was doing this. So, um. I try to allow him to get some experiences where 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 he feels confident if when he's on his own. Same thing with my younger one, but I am um, super overprotective. Like where they go, I need to know where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to have met the parent. Um, I try to do all those sorts of things to to ensure that I am doing my part. Make sure that they they grow up responsible and, and safe and while their brains aren't fully developed yet they don't take those risks that I did or do something that could either get them hurt or get them in trouble mm-hmm. how did you celebrate your 50th birthday Lawrence ah 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 don't say that word by ignoring it <laughs> <laughs> Oh, word, that dreaded word. Oh, no. That was, oh, something. I mean, my I tried to ignore it. I mean, for many years, after my 18th birthday, I ignored every single birthday. But when I got out, Ronine would have none of that. And she made a big deal of my birthday over and over again. And when I turned 50, she was she told me to pick up from work. She wanted to take me somewhere. And she said, just go with it. Go with it. Just let me do this thing. You have to let me do this thing. I said, okay. So I'm on the phone talking to two of my colleagues. And I'm like, I'm telling them, like, shit, I'm complaining to them. I'm like, oh, she has me doing this. She has me doing that. I have to drive all the way to Jersey. But little did I know, she took me to Atlantic City. The door opens about 50 people in there. Oh, Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> Including two of the individuals I was having a conversation with on the phone complaining. The whole time they was like, oh, I hope he gets off the phone. We have to get dressed. Uh, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, so it was it was really good. That's... And um, they had the dreaded 50 balloons there. And I tried to take it down. So... <laughs> The theme of the party became not 50. Not 50. <laughs> Wait, of those 50 people, like, who who was it? Like, who was in the room? It was a mix. And people I know, some people I work with, some, some a lot of people who were incarcerated with me, hmm. um, a lot of their wives, um, um, some people who, who worked inside prisons that I were in, um, people... Who, who who I've who I've known for a while who can make it. Um, not everyone could make it who I who I know and love, but there were a lot of folks who who came out, and I really appreciate that. That's journalist Lawrence Bartley. You can find his work from News Inside and Inside Story on themarshallproject.org. And we put links to all of my previous conversations with Lawrence and his wife, Renine, in our show notes. 
Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Zoe Azoulay. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Afi Yellow Duke, Amy Pearl, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis read our theme music. And if you want more Death, Sex, and Money content, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. There you'll find a note from me about what I'm currently thinking about. It's a little like my weekly journal. There's also staff picks and listener stories that we don't feature anywhere else. You can subscribe by going to deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. Thank you to Christine Coles in New York, New York, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Christine and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. Lawrence and I don't just have journalism in common. We also both have dogs that love to interrupt recordings at home. If I have two puppies, one is <laughs> over 130 pounds. Wait, I was just hearing some barking. Wait, is that what? Is that one of them? Oh, my God. <laughs> I guess he wants to be on your show. <laughs> so a 130-pound puppy does not sound like a puppy. Yeah, but the record, that wasn't him. That was the 13-pound puppy <laughs> Of course it was. When he barks, he shakes the room. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 